Hello, hello. Hello. So how was your wonderful week? A fucking nightmare from hell, man. <laughs> Last week it was so cold. Wind values in the, wind chill values in the single digits. It was like, oh no. Yeah, it was really freezing. I don't know. We didn't get any invites, and a lot of people I know that would have were out of town and wasn't going to my mother's turkey day and. I don't even like turkey too much. <laughs> so we went to we went to the coach diner and uh, it's alright. You know they have a nice menu. Some things like the dish I got was eh, you know, well, it's pricey for a freaking diner. So you know it is what it was. It was what it is. All all the guys are like from like South America that work there in the kitchen. So like an idiot, I get paella because I hadn't gotten it in years. This was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a ring endorsement. Eh, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, eh, maybe less than okay. <laughs> so, that was that. I gotta figure out how we're gonna do this in a month. I'm getting house gets for a couple of months. Uh-oh. Yeah. For a couple of months. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fancy schmancy. Hope you enjoy that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll figure it out. So, I guess we're never gonna see your ass. <laughs> Why? I don't know. He loves to drink. Right. Oh, are we doing a Godzilla show? <laughs> wow. Well, that's actually one of my message alerts. You crazy guy, you. <laughs> that's okay. Some person calls me up, one specific person, and it's all Ghidra noises. I forgot what Ghidra sounds like. Oh, is that Ghidra? Brings back memories. Anyway, so, with that being said, let's go to Stallone. All right. Listen to the Weird Seeds of Saturday Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Sylvester Stallone on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. So good evening and welcome to the second episode of the seventh season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, before he gets house guests, and as we discuss the <laughs> beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Hell's Kitchen brought the world two rather formidable things. My grandfather and the inimitable Sylvester Stallone. The son of, of all things, a beautician and an astrologer, Stallone survived a difficult birth and life on the mean streets of what had already become something of an ethnic ghetto to star in a notorious off-Broadway play soon to wind up as a Radley Metzger film, namely Score. Following theatrical work with a number of walk-ons and bit parts, including the infamous Italian Stallion, a.k.a. Party at Kitty and Studs, Woody Allen's Bananas, Death Race 2000, and episodes of Police Story and Kojak, Stallone rose to sudden and unexpected fame when he scripted, and then demanded the leading role in, despite studio pressure to use established marquee names, the story of a washed-up never-was who made a surprise bid at the big time, namely Rocky. 
going on to star in several films in this franchise, he'd strike gold for a second time when he started a film adaptation of a exploitation novel about Vietnam veterans suffering from PTSD in a nation that looked down on their efforts, First Blood, the first of the Rambo pictures. Alternating ongoing box office successes in those two series, with a number of interesting but often critically much maligned box office flop attempts at stretching at an actor, his work throughout the 80s and 90s would veer wildly between weird fish-out-of-water comedies like Rhinestone and bottom-of-the-barrel efforts like Stopping My Mom Will Shoot and Judge Dredd to over-the-top cop films as different in tone as Cobra and Tango and Cash, before once again hitting box office success with things like Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, and the recent Expendables series. So join us tonight as we put on our paisan to take on the inimitable Sylvester Stallone, the Italian stallion, the films of Sylvester Stallone. So, like I said, I'm Doc Savage with Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Actually, before people start snickering, we are not here to bury him. Actually, for the most part, we're here to praise him because, you know, aside from a couple of pictures that we, you know, we can't avoid discussing for their failure to succeed those are actually most of my favorites <laughs> yeah yeah and you know what and praise them you know why you enjoy them because you know there's always something it doesn't work unless it's completely you know mess but yeah. everybody you know everybody has something you like and others don't and you know the thing with this guy is and it happened to Schwarzenegger a little later on in his career is that all of a sudden like this guy's movies are making money there there's nothing like them you know and that these two guys were the one and two champ of the action movie blockbuster box office for maybe one or two decades yes or sparring you know to coin a phrase folks cinematically with this guy this guy this guy and they both did kind of odd pictures here and there but I think Stallone is the more savvy of the bunch i also did want to know i i damn i i saw this a couple of times I, i'm not sure if it was polio or not but he was afflicted at a young age with uh, as a child what i think it was polio and uh, my father had that and it it was it was a thing where the the eye droops a little bit mm-hmm. and the right of the uh, you know it's sort of like a stroke victim who never quite comes back yeah but he did a really good job of coming back as a teenager but it, it gives him that pronounced lip thing and a little bit of a droopy thing. So that's part of that. It's not an affectation. You know, the guy actually suffered that. Yeah, and I've heard an alternate theory of that, which who knows, both could be true, either could be true, you never know with these things, that had some kind of problem when his mother was going into labor. So, you know, in those days, when you had difficult labors, whether it be something that required a C-section, or, you know, they had to turn the baby around because it was facing the wrong way, or whatever, they would actually go in there with, like, steel forceps, and, like, grab the kid out and spin oh, around. Oh, and cause so disfigurement. Right, yeah. and I heard that it, like, pinched some nerves in his head, or whatever the hell, and that's why he's got the droopy eye and the, the slurred, you know. I did, I did read that I, I agree with you i did read that as well but uh i think he's been going with the other thing for so long that yeah i kind of think it well whatever it was it was you know not something it's not good. an affectation and like you said he did pull through considering he does pretty damn well and then the guy honestly he can actually act despite some of the films he's been in and how goofy mm-hmm. we can look at him He's like, well, you know, he's not a complete idiot you know he's even yeah. more savvy than schwarzenegger in a lot of ways and that says something Yes, throw me a bone here. So what movie did you want to pick up with? I'll just skim through a couple just so people know what's going on. In the beginning, films that were of interest, the infamous The Party of Kitty and Studs, where he plays Mm -hmm. Stud, later retitled The Italian Stallion once Rocky got popular. I can't remember seeing much more than a scene or two of this because where the hell are you going to find this stuff? But it was kind of a long-running joke for years, especially when he was huge in doing the Rocky and the Rambo films Mm -hmm. in the 80s. Everybody mentioned this thing. 
I don't know. I mean, I hear it from some sources it's a porno from the things that no, I've seen. It's not. Yeah, I thought it was more of a softcore film, and it they're is, playing it, it up is. like that. I defer to you on that one. I'm sure you're you're more of an expert. I no, I I did see it years and years ago, and it's it's it, you know it's one of those soft things that look like they can be hard. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, Something weird. The way yeah, yeah, the way they're shot. It is what it is. Yeah, he's a struggling guy. Like there were a lot of struggling guys, and and you know he wanted to eat, so he did this. Um, I mean, what's really interesting, and you already noted that, is that off Broadway or off off Broadway, he was in Score, and it would have been interesting if Mesker had cast him, and if he wanted to do it that early in the stage of the game, you know, what would have happened with his career, which way it would have went. And that was only a year later than this film, so. True, but I do remember him. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at the CV here, and I'm watching things like, you know, bananas. I fucking hate that movie. Money <laughs> and, and it's like, hey, look, it's Stallone. Yes. Or, you know, Clue, another oddball movie with a really good Donald Sutherland performance. And there he was, you know. Little bit parts uh, like that. Sidelong Glances of a Pigeon Kicker, which some people may know if you follow Code Red a couple of years ago. Weird little film. He's just a bit part. You know, he's there in a party, so what? He's still doing this stuff later into his career. Like, we may get to that later with the Robert Mitchum film that mm-hmm. he did. Was it Murder My Sweet? He's there for like three minutes and he doesn't even have a speaking role. But you see him, it's like, hey, it's Stallone. Even my wife walked in on that part. I was like, what's he doing there? <laughs> So. But I remember, because I, I saw this in the theater, Lords of Flatbush. Yes. One of those early, what was he really, you know, American graffiti type things, coming of age movies. Uh, this one was a lot of fun. It had a really good 50s type soundtrack. It was directed by a guy who did a couple of decent movies for a period of time, then either passed away or just disappeared off the face of the earth. We had Perry King, whatever happened to him. But Henry Winkler, way before Fonzie, was in this, too. Yep. You know, a couple of Brooklyn guys, you know, posing and and um, being themselves. It's a fun movie. It, it actually got a lot of accolades when it opened up. And it also has Susan Blakely, who for a time was a thing. She was in Capone. Which also Stallone was in, is a bit part. Yes, it was. And she... <laughs> She's why is she so famous for that? That is one of the few R-rated films that featured full frontal gash scene. She's as Susan Blakely's in bed, but Ben Gazzara goes to get out of bed. You know, he's playing Capone, and it's like, whoa! You mean this passed everybody's edit? It was the seventies. It was the seventies, <laughs> and, and I, I I remember that. I'm sorry. It had artistic merit. <laughs> That was their main qualifier in those days. They weren't as uptight. They weren't worried about the children. They were more worried about, is this for the prurient interest? Or does that have artistic merit? Because it was a big time for auteur directors and things like that. Steve Carver was actually one of, one of those Roger Corman guys. Actually was pretty good at some things. Actually, Stallone played Frank Needy in that mm-hmm. small part. Yeah, and another small part. He, he just popped up as a, you know, a random cameo, more or less, in one of those crappy Neil Simon things that was so huge during that decade, The Prisoner of Second Avenue. Mm-hmm. Then he starts getting slightly bigger parts. I mean, Death Race 2000, where he was, what was it, Machine Gun uh, Turbo or whatever the hell? Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah it was a, bit, a pretty big part with lines in that. Yeah, I remember that. I actually have a little short credit up on this one, just because you know, most people do know this right. one. Uh, sure. It's a weird black humor film from the 70s. Someone akin to Rollerball or the later Running 
Men, its mockery of pop culture, and how ostensibly passive entertainment always sort of returns to the schadenfreude of the Roman arena in the end. Essentially, it just follows these oddball racers, people like David Carradine's in this, Mary Warren, Oliver Berta Collins. I mean, you recognize these people. In this boundaryless demolition derby slash off-road race, where drivers are given points for killing innocent bystanders. For years, my folks, every time we were out in a drive, especially if some moron was just like jaywalking, we were like, ten points, three points! You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It sounds a whole hell of a lot better than it actually plays out. But I had very good memories of this from television airings as a kid. It's just when I had seen it again, yeah, maybe a decade ago or less, and I was like, eh. And then I tried it again a year or two back, and I was like, yeah, it's not what I remembered. But if you were there at a certain point in history, it probably still holds up well in your memories. Just good luck going back to it. <laughs> What's your take? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on this one. This was a movie I, I, I don't know if I saw it in the theater. I might have. It just never, it's not as good as its reputation. Yes. That's actually the line I left out at the end of my write-up. Has a much better reputation than it deserves, so jinx uh, on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's the car crash scenes are pretty good. You know, Hal Needham type stuff. You know, but Carradine is stiff in it. Well, as he has for a lot of this stuff. And and it's just, I don't know. It's the one movie. Here we are in 2019 when you guys are going to be listening to this, I presume, and they're still making. Reboot sequels. Yes. One just came out recently, Death Race 2000 Part 41, because mm. they, they redid it with Jason Statham and actually got some... Any Jason Statham gets decent reviews nowadays, even if it's DTV. It actually got decent reviews for being a reboot, but there's like five sequels now, and like Lucas... What's his name? He was in uh, Fast and Furious Part 41. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lucas something or Lucas Haas from uh, Witness? <laughs> some, somebody like that. Uh, he took over for a couple of pictures. Now they got somebody else, and it's just anyway. The last one got really bad reviews. I didn't even see it. Well, I don't see everything. So that being said, so seventy-five, he's still kind of kicking around doing bit parts. He does do a little bit of TV. Like I said, he was on an episode of Police Story, which was mm-hmm. big for a bit. He was on an episode of Kojak, which was huge. He was in a film called Cannonball. He was very briefly, as I mentioned, in this Farewell, My Lovely, which. Surprisingly enough, I thought that it was a remake of a 50s noir, oh. uh, but it was not. It was actually the only filming of it ever. I forget. it was. This wasn't Splane. This was the other fella. Raymond Chandler. Chandler. There you go. Here, it's you know, Mitchum in his dotage, basically. I think he had just gotten off the Yakuza. That was just kind of brought him back. And mm-hmm. he was doing a few films again at that time. Charlotte Rampling's in it, which is always good by me. John Ireland, of all people. Sylvia Miles, people from that decade would recognize her. Harry Dean Stanton, well before he wound up doing like whatever the hell, Night Court or whatever he did. Joe Spinell was interesting because not only is he the maniac, but he wound up doing a lot of stuff with Stallone. Stallone liked him and would kind of cast him every opportunity he got going forward for a bit. Mm-hmm. So, But Stallone was only in it for, like I said, maybe three minutes total. He's one of the bodyguards. He's ogling this young, and she's played up as being young, blonde mistress to this big Bulldike that's like running a, she's a madam or something that they go to visit at one point for right. I remember that. And yeah. you know, she's like, Oh, okay and Stallone's mind's been bed with her and of course, you know, the 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 love interest, this big, he's huge, matronly, kind of like a dinner lady arms type, he comes in and starts beating her for it. And, of course, everybody gets killed because it's one of those mob-type movies. But, yeah, I actually was impressed with it. I was, I watched it just for a laugh. I'm like, oh, let me see this. Let me see how Stallone's in it. And poof, there it was. Can you still hear me? Yeah, you sound... Uh... Hello. All right. I, I, I had to refill my wine glass. <laughs> All right, so here we are. It sounds like we're back again. All right, so we're basically done with that one. Unless you had something you want to say about that. Yeah. 
Okay, so he starts off now with Rocky. Now, surprisingly, I'm not going to have much to say about the Rocky films because, and this will blow your mind, I never liked them. <laughs> I know they're a huge thing, especially those of the Italian persuasion. See, this is some kind of, you know, oh, this is our national hero or something, where this kind of little guy that's, he's just a bum, you know, like said, you're a bum, you're a bum. And he kind of makes his way up just kind of by accident. You know, he's having problems with his girlfriend. You know, she gets pregnant, whatever the hell else. He's in the ghetto. He's just got no money. He's you know, a flop boxer. And all of a sudden, he manages to luck into getting this shot at the champ, basically. And the whole thing's about him training for this and actually managing to get it despite, you know, grueling odds and getting to the point where the, the doctors are saying, hey, you can't fight anymore, that kind of crap. And yet he wins it at the end. And then the, it actually ends with him, like, they're holding his hands up, well, here's the champ, and here goes the roll of wow, credits. You, you just described all five pictures at once. Pretty much. <laughs> That's the problem with them. It's all the same fucking picture. You know, some people that you recognize in here, you know, Polly Shire, this is really the only thing she ever did with her life. Oh, Paul Weathers who was actually, he wound up doing quite a bit of stuff. I know that Predator, Action Jackson, I mean, you know, he was around for a bit. I always liked him. Burgess, Meredith, the Penguin, you're a bum. Thayer David from Dark Shadows, you know, Ben, gentle Ben. Joe Spinell's in this, like I mentioned. Frank Stallone, his brother, who wound up doing, those of you who remember the Monday Night Football thing when they had that, we are far from over, dun, 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 dun. That was his theme. He did like a disco record. Lloyd Kaufman, you know, the guy that the trauma was in this. It's that kind of a film. But the big thing about it, the real story behind this, is actually better than the film itself, I think, which was, like I mentioned in the intro, he wrote the script himself. He stumped for it. People were interested right away, but they said, oh, let's put in, you know, whoever's big at the time. Redford, but, you know, names like that. Burt Reynolds, actually. Burt yeah. Reynolds, huge names at the time, which probably would have been great for the film as a one-off. But in terms of him, he's like, no, I want to star in this. And he stuck through his guns. He managed to take a pay cut on the thing because, okay, we'll give you less money if you're going to star in it because this isn't going to go anywhere. And it became this huge success. I remember lines going around the theater. My folks went to see it with another couple that they're friendly with. And they had already seen it like two or three times with other people and just kept dragging people to see Rocky. It was a big deal. It was a cultural milestone in the way that Jaws or Star Wars was. The fact that I don't like it doesn't say much about it. It's just that's... At the well, time, it was a huge thing. So. Would you want me to comment on this in all the series? And then uh, yeah, go, go for it. Okay, so basically, yeah, yeah, you're right. He wrote it himself. John D. Avildsen, who was kind of like a softcore kind of guy, but he did this really bitter movie called Joe with uh, Peter Boyle. Uh, you guys can research that. It's not a well-liked film, but a lot of people love it. You know, it's it's that kind of picture. Joe was like this racist construction worker kind of guy and that was Avelson's big movie before this so you know working with the United Artists he wrote it in a short amount of time he was reportedly down and out as much as he could be he he was tired of doing the bit parts yeah they offered it to a lot of people reportedly and and he said I want to start this thing and they're like looking at him and like all right so I understand that this budget of this thing was probably less than a million. I think that was very charitable for the reports I'm seeing. Probably a lot less. But it's made millions in the box office. A story of a guy who just came from the gutter and, you know, became heavyweight boxing champion of the world. You know, it was the whole thing like Apollo Creed, who was called Weathers, wants to hold a title bout in Philly. It's where Rocky's from, the character. And uh, things happen. Rocky meets the promoter. They're like, 
you're going to lose anyway. It turns out his life is like bottoming out. So he has like an epiphany moment. He starts training and really training like he thinks he can beat this guy. And then he, he fights Weathers and it's like, wow, he's kind of worried. Apollo Creed, the heavyweight, you know, like a, uh, imagine like a Muhammad Ali is yep. fighting Joe Schmo, and then Joe Schmo kicks his ass almost, and then he's like, oh, we got to have a rematch. And that's what the whole thing about Rocky was. And he's battered and bruised, and he came out there, and he, and he fought him. It was sort of, uh, I guess you could look at it as a crucial part in his filmography, because this is like a guy who's... Not a pretty boy, and, but has some smarts, and he's trying to get his way up the up the ladder, acting wise. And you know, and he does his picture, and it's like bam, yep. it really hits success. I guess since you don't like them, I'm just going to quickly run through the rest. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is really quick. The okay. second one is basically a rematch. Mm -hmm. Then you have the one where he goes against Mr. T, who was supposed to be scary, believe it or not. And then you have the one where, okay, now he's big time, and he's got to come back to go against Russia, because, you know, Russia was our big enemy at the time, which it is again. And that was Dolph, Dolph Lundgren, believe it or not. That started off his career. So it kind of tanked Mr. T's career and started off Dolph Lundgren's. And then after that, I think they go right back to Apollo Creed again, don't they? No, no. That was Rocky Four or Dolph. Okay, yeah, we'll do it this way. And then part five had real-life boxer Tommy Morrison, who was known as a bit of a pain in the ass to, you know, boxing circles. You know, people said he was raw. He was a real-life boxer. You know, the guy was on HBO and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Stallone sort of kind of semi-promoted him for a while. And um, Sage has a big part. Yes, the late stage Stallone's uh, son. It just, it was an okay picture. It was like Rocky coming back from the edge. And I didn't really dig it too much. This is 1990, folks. Mm -hmm. It was sort of probably the weakest of all the Rocky pictures. That one, oh, was Rocky. Bear with me. Yeah, Rocky Five. Rocky Five was directed by John G. Avildsen, who came back to do it. You know, hoping to, like, recap some things, because... Stallone's entering into a phase here where he's on again, off again, but success. So I think they, they want to try to do something. Rocky Balboa, which is 19... 2006. Yeah, I think it was the 90s. I thought it was 2000s. <laughs> 2006, directed by Stallone, actually is a, a much better, probably the best picture since 4. Here, he's a much older man. He's, he's starting to exhibit heart ailments. His son now played by someone else, Milo Ventimiglia, who was briefly uh, a thing for a moment on TV shows. This is a much better Rocky film. Rocky's now in his late 50s, retired from boxing. Adrian is dead, so he talks to her gravestone like she's been doing for the last three pictures. <laughs> it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty sweet film. It's a, a melancholy picture, but got some of Stallone's better acting stuff around this time which 10 years later it's followed by Creed giving Stallone his one and only Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor and a major Best Supporting Actor nomination from the Academy Awards he was nominated for Best Actor for Rocky so here he is 150 years later nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the same part which is nice it's sweet yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody said this was good. I saw it. It was really good. He's a much older Rocky. He finds a young man who's uh, the son of Apollo Creed, who became a friend of his. Go figure. Apollo Creed's long dead now, so he's he's training this this black kid who's 
you know, from the rough side of town and, you know, he done bad things. And Creed got a lot of kudos from the critics. It did well at the box office and actually gave Stallone a big boost in terms of post what is that called? The Exterminators? What that? Expendables. Expendables. Yeah. Like after 1, 2, and 3, suddenly, you know, things are kind of like evening out a little bit, kind of, you know. Falling down, I guess. Yeah, mainlining, and then all of a sudden does this, and like, oh, we can't turn around and say, his time has come. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, he delivers a performance that is getting accolades. Now, Creed 2 just came out this weekend. Thanksgiving weekend. I, I can't comment on it. I haven't seen it. It's getting mixed, mixed comments. I will say this. It brings back Dolph Lundgren. Interesting. As Creed, the son of Apollo Creed, who Stallone is the boxing, uh, what do you call it? Like Burt Bert Young was in the other Rocky movies. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, is fighting the son of Drago, who was, Ivan Drago was Dolph Lundgren's character in Rocky IV. So now Creed Jr. versus Drago Jr. So that's what this is about. And it just came out. So let's reach back. I can't come on to that. I think these are classic films of their type. Uh, Rocky, I really like. I, one, two, and three are good. No, one, three, and four are really good. Five is a good drama picture. And now we're going to go to... Well, jumping all the way back, Stallone is still kind of in this... I hate to say, but it kind of is like an Italian film ghetto sort of thing. Because, okay, you're talking about Lords of Flatbush. You're talking about Rocky. You're mm-hmm. talking about some of these other mob films that he was kind of a bit player in. And he's still doing pictures like Fist, which was basically about Jimmy Hoffa, more or less, as a unionizing thing. Yeah, and by Norman Jewison, of all people. That's so weird. Paradise Alley, again, about being in New York in the 40s, some Italians. Okay, fine, whatever. Which he directed. Which still won't direct to that. Yeah. That's true. If you're into that sort of a thing, if you're into uh, mm. if you're into Scorsese films, you might enjoy these kind of films. But you know, otherwise they're kind of of their time. You know, they're forgettable. There's been too many of these since then. So he goes on now and he does wait, something. That's, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, I don't like him. So now, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> now, Fist, uh, Norman Jewison, who was like, you know big uh, Fiddler on the Roof director and um, he, he directs this movie that Joe Esterhaus and Stallone collaborated on. Everybody remembers Joe Esterhaus from Showgirls. Yes. Anybody say anymore? But this movie has you know, heavy hitting people. Rod Steiger, Peter Boyle, Tony Lobianco. So you know there must have been a lot of shouting in this thing. Not the Jimmy Hoffa story, but very close to it. It's thinly veiled. It's about unions, you know, dock workers, unions, that kind of thing. Could have been the Jimmy Hoffa story. Paradise Alley, actually directed by Stallone, has a pretty big part in there for Joe Spinell. Kevin Conway, whatever happened to him, is in it. Armand DeSante, Tom Waits, the Tom Waits is in this thing. And My girl Amy Eccles. Yeah, right. It's another guy from Hell's Kitchen on the wrong side of the tracks coming out there. And, you know, it's not so much a union picture so much. It's got no. wrestling in it. It's kind of, I think, <sighs> Stallone claims he wrote the screenplay before he even wrote Rocky. And now with his success as a filmmaker, an actor, whatever, he could do what he wants. So he probably went back to, you know, I don't know, Universal, wherever it was at this time, and said, no, it was Universal, and said, uh, you know, I have this picture about a guy from Hell's Kitchen trying to make it in the world of professional wrestling. Well, all right. It was not, I think, I think 
if, uh, to truth be told, Fist did much better. The movie Fist did much better, critically at least. I think people went to see it and said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, a movie about unionizing and people arguing amongst another. You know, nobody ever wanted to see that kind of thing. And Paradise Alley, you know, wrestling, 78, it's still a big draw for people. But I think once you mix drama with that, it's a touchy subject. And I, I think probably why he went back and did Rocky Two the next year. Yeah, because, I mean, Fist, you would see all the time on pay cable channels, where mm-hmm. it was like a regular thing. You would see it in your video stores, back when people used to haunt those of the VHSs. Paradise Alley, that was kind of flash in the pan forgotten. It really was a minor footnote in his catalog, if you will. But now comes some really interesting movies. Yeah, because first up, he actually does Nighthawks, yeah. which is a strange film. Basically, Stallone attempts to move into Pacino territory, but he can't carry the same weight, at least not yet. A lot of big names, there's a gritty New York City vibe, but somehow, even though I watched it a couple of times over the last year or two, it just doesn't hold up as well as other cop films of the era, or even other films focused on the New York City of its day. Stallone and Billy Dee Williams, who is still hot off Star Wars, are New York cops up against an, an international bomber and terrorist. Lindsay Wagner, the bionic woman, is his ex-wife who still holds some feelings for him. Joe Spinell the grumpy lieutenant who demands action. Star Trek The Motion Pictures, Persis Kambata, and Rucker Hauer are the baddies. Even Jamie Gillis makes a cameo, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably down the direction and maybe even the script why this one just comes off kind of, I don't know, like bland, forgettable, generic, when films with lesser casts and budgets have and deserve major cult followings. The best thing about this one, like I said, is it feels very authentic to the period. But you can find better films for that. You know, you can go to Maniac, Vigilante, New York Ripper, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. There's so many films that feel New York City during the heyday of the deuce and all that. Or even something like Serpico. But this one here, you know, it's got something to it. It's definitely watchable. It's just... It feels generic compared to those. So, well, what's your I, take? I, I disagree. Also, it's got Keith Emerson soundtrack. Yeah, Keith Emerson did the score. I disagree because the thing I found really interesting about this movie is like the bearded Stallone trimmed mm. down too is is dialing back his performance in this. He's, he's playing he's playing a lot less larger in life than we're yes. accustomed to. Actually, quieter if that word could be applied here. And and there's there's some incredible stunts, man, that he does. Uh, there's the one in the New York City subway. I it's an interesting movie. Bruce Malmuth, who, yes, directed <laughs> it. Um, I I shouldn't say sorry, Bruce. He didn't have much of a career as a director. He kind of was like. A bit part actor, so I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Oh, uh, he used to work. Oh, okay. He really, he didn't do much at all as a director. Not even television. Beside Nighthawks, he did Hard to Kill, the Seagal picture, a terrible Steve Gutenberg movie. He kind of disappeared, disappeared off the face of the earth. Oh no, sorry, he died of cancer, uh, 2005. But he was mainly known as a second unit guy. He would do announcing at. Yankee games, you know, he wasn't really the guy, so that might that might account for the not tightness, the, the the overall feel of it being a little looser than we're accustomed to for this kind of genre film. I think it's a fine picture. There's just enough cool stuff in this movie for me to say I recommend it. Uh, the next one's a bit problematic. Yeah, and you mentioned Stallone playing it low key. That's very true. It's just 
it feels too low-key. It's almost like he blended into the scenery. You know, Pacino would have taken that, even at his calmest, and made something of it. Like, okay, you're going to watch me. Stallone doesn't do that, at least at this point in his career. He's kind of like, I don't know, maybe he's uncertain on his feet. He's not sure how to play something that dial back. But it well, felt not very yet. Long. Not yeah. yet. Not until Tanker on Cash. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love Tanker on Cash. That's uh, a classic, man. So... Uh, he does Victory, which is a really strange picture. This is one about the Nazis, and they have all these POWs from different countries, and they have soccer matches against each other while the French Resistance and the British are trying to invade Fortress Europe. And they have different teams, like Stallone is the head of the USA soccer team. Michael Caine is the head of the England soccer team. Pele, the famous soccer player, is the head of the Brazil soccer team, of course. Max von Sydow is not from Norway, but he's with the head of the Germans, okay? Okay, whatever. And who's it directed by? John Houston, which is really strange. <laughs> really? John Houston? Okay, there you go. Stuff like The Searchers. I mean, okay. Because of that, because it is Houston, Houston was one of those larger-than-life people. I don't want to go into too much of a tangent there, but he's almost like in Orson Welles, where he would kind of walk in, or uh, less coked up, but uh, Sam Peckinpah, same thing. He'd walk in, he'd take over the thing. It didn't matter how drunk he was or how abrasive he was or whatever. Somehow he would make a picture that you at least really want to see and would talk about. But mm-hmm. anybody that had to deal with him, that's a different story. <laughs> Bombastic character. Always interesting, though. So, you know, this is not a piece of junk. It's just like, what, what the hell is this picture about? I actually saw this theatrically. Shh. And it's... It doesn't really get rousing till the final 15 minutes. You know, the, uh, it's it's a decent enough throwback to you know Great Escape kind of thing because these guys are also planning an escape. Yes, I mean, you know, folks, if you haven't seen this, just to see Michael Caine and Stallone together, <laughs> or Max von Sydow, it's worth. It. That's what Lou says. You know, because <laughs> there's there's no scenery left unchewed. <laughs> If, and you keep bringing up Al Pacino, if Al was in this movie, forget oh my about God, it. Forget they it. would eat the celluloid. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's, it's it's directed by John Huston. You're expecting. So, okay, let's dial it back a minute. Take the jokes aside. Stallone's had some success here. He's writing his ticket now. So he could probably put together a picture with an international cast like this. I had no doubt. That they could rally around a director like John Huston, I had no doubt. But once everybody got assembled, I'm sure it was very problematic. I'm sure Huston was like, what the fuck is this in between cigar chomping? Oh, yeah. Big cigar the chomping. The bellowing was, must have been intense. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was so much storming, storming off set. Hey, John! John and Houston going, I'll listen here. You fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah, fucking idiots. And Michael King going, oh, now, listen. You know, and then Pelé's like, I'll go sit over here. <laughs> it's not a terrible movie by far. It's it's just like, if you want to see something odd from this time period, this yeah. is certainly it. Now, since I, I covered Rocky Three, unless you have a note about it. Not really. Just the, the only thing that was really stood out to me is that it's tying into professional wrestling at the time when it really was blowing up under Vince McMahon Jr. Because Senior already had moved wrestling from being sort of a sideshow that you know old ladies went to and sat in the front row and cheered for. Upgrade of boxing, if you will. A little more comical, a little more fake, a little more bloody. But the same idea to being something that was more 
I don't want to say for the kids, but more bombastic, more visual, more entertaining uh, than just sports per se. You know, it's more than just being, okay, let's go watch a boxing match, let's go watch a baseball game. All of a sudden it's like, oh, let me root for the good guy versus the bad guy, the face versus the heel, and this guy's bigger than life, and this guy represents you know, whatever country we're fighting this week, and whatever the hell else, all the, the comic book aspects. Vince McMahon Jr. is one that really brought that out. And this was right around the time that he was taking over. This was right before even WrestleMania was in his head. So, so it's just like the boxing version of WrestleMania. Yeah, complete with Mr. T and Hulk Hogan in it. So, you know, yeah. you get the idea. But, you know, it's just, it's Mr. T. I mean, okay, yeah, he works well enough in the part, but, you know, DC Cab, you know, the A-Team, you know, he's like, anybody that knows Mr. T from years afterwards knows he's like, you know, four foot seven. I mean, he's not really intimidating in real life. You know, mm-hmm. Mr. T's commandment, oh, okay, pay this to your parents and drink your milk and eat your vegetables. <laughs> you know, it's not really this thing, mm-hmm. what you would expect here. So, in retrospect, it's actually kind of comical. But, you know, it is what it is. But moving on, though, he does make another wise move because he could have just kind of rose and fell in the Rocky movies and already either being hitting his pinnacle with three and four or kind of petering off there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he discovers or falls into or whatever it is, the Rambo pictures, which at the time were not what they became. It was, like I mentioned, this sort of PTSD exploitation thing. Without a lot of characterization or build, we're dropped in on Vietnam vet John Rambo trying to visit an old war buddy. He finds out he's dead, and this is in like the first three minutes with not a lot of speaking, not a lot of exposition. And almost immediately thereafter, he's getting arrested and hassled by this asshole hick cop just for walking down the street. You know, he's got his little backpack or whatever, and well, this he's not a town or maybe a Yankee, and that's it, they're going to give him shit. And unfortunately, that's something that I'm familiar with in my own life in, in the past. So the rest of the film is basically him getting shit and death threats at the precinct. Yep, get that one. And escaping, which leads to an hour and a half manhunt where he keeps him at bay using military survival skills, only eventually surrendering to military after breaking down emotionally at the end. And of course, that's when the theme really comes out. It's somewhere between this sort of serious, dramatic thing about PTSD and how the vets handle coming back from all that upfront and boundaryless death and trauma, you know, like little kids coming to with a grenade in their mouth or whatever the hell, only to be spit on and marginalized by their peers when they came back home, especially in the post-hippie era. And this cheap action revenge film about going up against corrupt and small-minded authority figures, and oddly it kind of leans more towards that than the former. Even so, it's about the most intellectually engaging and thoughtful as a Rambo film will ever get. So even though you can see where this might be going, it is not formula Rambo yet. It's, it was a strange little picture. And, you know, for what it is, he does well in it, so... Ah, or, or, you know, this first picture is really good. I mean, you know, Brian Dennehy, who... <laughs> he was a good actor, and... and was he still around? I'm not sure. But but he was really good in his heyday, put it that way. And he really excelled in these kind of parts, in, as the, in the roles of a belligerent sheriff or a lawman and et cetera, et cetera. Stallone really, again, this is a dialed back performance. It's not over the top. It's really interesting kind of what he did with this. The movie originally ended with him killing himself, with Colonel Chapman watching him, which was Richard Crenna, who also had like a career resurgence with this thing. It's funny, a lot of the people in bit parts as a scumbag policeman you got like Bill McKinney from Deliverance, and you got Jack Starrett, who was a, a film director for years and years, TV guy too. You got a lot of interesting people in small bit part roles. This movie really was. I think the reason why Stallone kind of keyed into this book by this guy named David Burrell 
was there was a lot of shit going on about returning Vietnam vets. Oh yeah. After the war, they had long hair. You know, their hair grew out while they were in them under captivity. They were shell shocked. They were. They did some really intense heroin. Yeah. Yeah. All kinds of shit. He came back here, this character in this movie, to see a friend. And his hair was longish and curly and kind of big guy. Right away, they think he's a troublemaker or he's a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, in a way, was a fictionalized account of what returning Vietnam vet GIs had to deal with. And I think this was, this is why it did so well. I think in the uh, in the theaters and on video and on TVD and on endless runs of fucking HBO cable, your mother's living room TV. It's because for once, aside from Rocky, he tapped into something more than Rocky. I would say I want to backtrack that more than Rocky. He tapped into something purely Americana. He tapped into regret and disdain and the mix of all that stuff going on at once and rejection and he probably tapped into his earlier career rejection i mean i think if you if you're an actor you want to pull from something he probably looked deep inside before he hit it big what was he doing he was being rejected he was doing shit movies five minute parts how much money is he getting six thousand dollars how long does that last you know it don't last so this is a really good picture ted kacha pretty much tv guy years later uh, or around this time. It was a win-win all around for a lot of people. Yeah. Unfortunately, Sly <laughs> followed this up with a very bizarre movie. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'd like to say also that his main scene at the end, if you want to consider the, the big dramatic scene, when he's breaking down, more or less crying and you know mm. falling apart, felt very real. So it's yes. a big step up from what he was doing previously. He's finally starting to really tap into his own whatever as an actor, not just as, okay, here's a presence on screen. And I hazard to say that this was the start of a lot of things. Yes, a lot of the American jingoism of the era because of, you know, under Reagan, it really got crazy there for a while. But this is when you started seeing all of a sudden all those, other than the random once in a while you would see a, a Marine or whatever the hell, would have one of those MIA POW uh, things with the black flag and all that, and go back and when are we going to go back and free these guys? We know they're still there on a truck right. or whatever, but all of a sudden it was everywhere. It was and everywhere. It, I really think that this movie and the one that followed it really kind of brought that more to the awareness of the public and really got that sentiment revved up for much more than it was previously. So Next up, he actually does another bit part in Staying Alive, which probably was because his brother Frank was a major player in that one. It's a follow-up. And he directed it. And he directed it, though. So blessed. It is a follow-up to the Saturday Night Fever, the infamous John Travolta film. Not as successful, but anyway, he does a big part in this one. So next up, he does a film which... What? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> You're jumping beyond this. I know he's not in this film, except for maybe a small cameo. But Staying Alive was a movie where, where Stallone sculpted John Travolta's body into godness. Remember this? Yes. Remember he was imperfect? <laughs> he was imperfect. It was like, holy fuck, do that to me, man. You know, it's like so bizarre. There's a lot of stuff going on there if we want to think uh, homoerotica. You can't really follow up a movie like Saturday Night Fever with a picture that takes place... <laughs> Six years later, and you know he's still trying to make it. Now he wants to be a, a dancer on Broadway, and it was just like, mm, 
that's a big difference from, okay, I want to take over my local disco because it makes me feel like a man when I feel small in my real life, to all of a sudden now I want to be a Broadway dancer, which, like you said, amps up the homoerotica. It makes it a lot more fey and artistic and a feat, and it doesn't fit the character even. No, it doesn't put the characters. Some some returning people characters from Saturday Night Fever pop up, but it looks like a not true sequel. And uh, aside from, I'm sure a lot of guys like how John Travolta looked in this, all glistening wet, those abs and stuff. You know, <laughs> hey, you know, like pinch my nipples kind of thing. You know, but. Um, and I'm sure Sly worked really hard in the gym. No pun intended, but <laughs> but it did not do well. I, and I'm one of the idiots that actually saw this when it came out because mm. I was really curious what they were going to do with this. And you mentioned Frank Stallone, who's actually in it. But this time, Sly could not get a really good, strong supporting cast. No. So we had people like Steve Inwood, who was in T.V. Michaels movies. I mean, it was that... <laughs> Down home. Oh, okay. You ready for this? Kurtwood Smith is the choreographer of this would-be show. And Kurtwood Smith was in RoboCop. <laughs> wow. As the villain and as was in that 70s show for years as the father. So it, it was like, really, what is going on here? But the worst came next. <laughs> okay. This was around the time that the Dukes of Hazard was huge on television. I mean, it kind of erupted in 79 and stuck around for seven seasons. They sort of jumped the shark in season five when they put in those replacement Dukes there. But nonetheless, it was a big deal for a lot of years. Really brought Southern car culture to the fore. Brought that sort of down-home thing that you got with the Waltons or with Burt Reynolds films in the 70s to the television screens of America. Softened it, boulderized it, made it sweeter and safer, but nonetheless, it was a big thing. And that's the only real excuse for this. That and the urban cowboy thing that happened in the very early 80s, which was stuff like, my folks were into that shit. You know, let's go to Gillies and ride the mechanical bull or whatever the hell and do country line dancing. Yeah, you've never even been to the fucking country, but all right, nonetheless. But that said, Rhinestone comes about in 1984. Now, this one's going to blow your mind, because for years, and I mean years, the only Stallone film in my collection, the one that I found so hilariously bad yet fun that I had to have it and had repeat views, I felt really used Stallone as he should be used, and I mean that in a very tongue-in-cheek sense, was Rhinestone. This was the epitome of the sort of film that I enjoy, outside of like creaky pre-code talkies and 70s cult Euro horror, because it's campy. It's absurd. It's so bad, it's great. I mean, the whole thing is a few years too late. But like I said, it's tapping into that whole urban cowboy thing that popped up on the ass end of the 70s and had actually died off totally somewhere in the mid-80s when Gillies was a go-to for young, hip, urbanites to grab a few beers, do some country line dancing, and ride the mechanical bull. Don't ask me what the hell this stuff was about, but it was a real thing. And like I said, my folks were into that shit big time. Dolly Parton's more or less herself having problems with a sleazy city slicker manager who essentially just wants to grab hold of that formidable Dollywood mountain range after he tries to push an overly aggressive cowboy goth act which tanks wildly so I guess they've never heard of Nick Cave or Dwight Yoakam yet she winds up making a bet with the guy that she could turn anybody into a country singer cue our hero Stallone is a real doofus of a New York cabbie and very Italian 
He lives with his parents in a loft above the family funeral home, where he later regales Parton with a terrible rendition of Tutti Frutti on the pipe organ during a service, much to the horror of everyone in attendance. They also love to put him down and embarrass him in public situations. Now, if you're Paisan, you'll start nodding your head at all the family scenes. He sings even worse than Travolta in Greece, which is a real feat. So she decides to bring him down home to try to get a little of that Dukes of Hazzard into his soul. And they wind up sort of kind of falling for each other. Much of this may have local flame. Wait for it. Tim Thomerson. That's right. Doll man and Jack Death himself as a good old boy. Uh, in the end, she rather unbelievably turns him into a rhinestone cowboy dressed New York cowpoke and wins the bet with a semi-passable duet between the two of them. But he's still really bad, and nobody outside the film cast could ever actually buy that. It's the epitome of what used to be agreed upon as a universally mocked, quote-unquote, bad film. But there's too much to like here from Parton's down-home charm and Stallone's own persona for the first time being liberated from having to play it serious. So he's very obviously just having fun with it. He's having a ball. I never liked the Rocky films. I was never that big a fan of the first two Rambo films until this last viewing. I'm like, okay, now I get them. Those first two anyway. But Rhinestone? It's still one of my favorite Stallone films. Plus, Dolly sings a lot of songs about casual sex. Well, this this is the movie he turned down Romancing a Stone and Beverly Hills Cop to do. Can you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> um, they they gave him $5 million, which at that time... Which That's good money. That's damn good money. Yeah. That was a lot of money in 84. And uh, percentage of the gross, of course. <laughs> of course, when it's 50 cents, it's not much. <laughs> Um, I don't know. This thing had a, the most strange history. Oh, yeah. You know, Mike Nichols was going to direct it, and then that didn't happen. And, you know, it's, it's it has accolades from the Golden Raspberry yes. Awards, unfortunately. You know, I, I did see this, and, <laughs> and I did see it, and I, I don't know what to make of it. And... <laughs> it's In a way, it's charming, because, yeah. yes, he... He's less inhibited, so he's just going for broke. I don't know. It's, there's no question it's terrible, but that's what makes it great. The first time I saw it, my mouth dropped, and then I started laughing. And I've never stopped laughing all these years since. <laughs> I pull it out at random. Like, if I'm going to pull out a film, and it's like, oh, look, Rhinestone's sitting there. There, out it comes. <laughs> So, actually, my wife's seen it so many times, she was angry at me because I watched it without her. Because I suggested it as a joke, like, oh, you can watch Rhinestone with me. And she, like, kept giving me a weird look, so I finally watched it myself. And then she was like, you watched it without me? <laughs> <laughs> I love that film. Uh, so, anyway, next he goes back to Rambo. First Blood Part 2. Now, cute Julia Nixon of the Nico Masarakis glitch film, and the infamous Double Dragon, I should also mention, brings a little bit of humanity to this cheesy bit of jingoist nonsense that kicked off a whole genre of Vietnam vets going back to find POWs 20 years later, most entertainingly in the first Missing in Action. But there's a host of these kind of films produced within a very short period across the U.S., Italy, and the Philippines. It's very watchable and very 80s, but it's a very different film from First Blood, to say the least. I did not mind it, but yeah, I mean, First Blood is really the start and end of the series for me. Oh, I like this one. <laughs> there's, there's something very cheesy and very bizarre oh, yeah. about the whole thing. Uh, George Pan Cosmodos, I know, who, <laughs> the Greek director, he did the Cassandra Crossing and a couple other really interesting movies. He pretty much, I have to say, came out of nowhere, having done the Cassandra Crossing a couple of years earlier. 
and probably was riding on the coast of that. He's since turned up again recently, and his son is directing But uh, nowadays. But this is just a go-for-broke... I mean, this is like the movie Squibs were made for. Mm-hmm. You know, Blood Squibs and, and the amped-up violence. Yeah, this was like crazy. We also have an interesting cast of bad people in this movie. We have Charles Napier. Everybody loves to hate Charles. He was in this, and uh, Stephen Burkhoff, who was really good at playing Russian generals in Bond movies for a period of time, is in this. Martin Kolb is in this, and and Marty's the one that <laughs> Sligo Coleman to get you. Remember? Yes. That's the famous line that lasts for the rest of. Uh, we'll, we'll probably be singed from the earth, and it'll still be going on. I like this movie. It's crazy. It's over the top, and as you said, it led to a whole genre of movies. Finding even more interesting, they wanted to replace Krenner with Lee Marvin really? for the sequel. And they wanted to have John Rambo have a partner, his brother, played by Travolta. Mm. And, you know, it's just, it's just the whole thing is insane. Yeah. Now, we managed to get this brilliant film as it is. <laughs> this is stretching it, but okay. Very watchable. No, no, I mean brilliant in the terms of... <laughs> It's Kuroko TriStar, uh, you know, it's 85, you, you got the jingo. What was so good about Rambo, First Blood 1, or just First Blood, whatever it was called, and it was so amped up and blown out of proportion. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of movie that they misunderstood what the first movie was about. Yes, very much so. This was the America of Reagan, where he took Bruce Springsteen up on stage and thanked him for writing Born in the USA because it's so patriotic and it's turning all the kids on to patriotism. And Springsteen's looking at him like, what the fuck am I doing here? And just shook his hand kind of nervously. Same mm-hmm. thing. This is with the guys who did Rambo after watching First Blood. But this this is also a, a key film, though, in, in action cinema. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot would not have existed for this movie. Also, have to note, screenplays by Sylvester Stallone and James Cameron. Yes. So, there's that too. Well, James Cameron just came off Piranha 2, which was actually my favorite film of his. <laughs> so it says something. <laughs> you crazy uh, guy. Alright, next. So, next up, he does another one that actually was on my shelves for many years. Not as beloved as Rhinestone, because it's not as funny. But it is funny. Cobra. We mentioned this one during our Canon film show. Yes. director. Marion Cobretti. It's oddly fun. It's extremely 80s. It's a canon cross between Dirty Harry and Bronson's Death Wish films, which were also canon. Stallone is Marion Cobretti, a first name that gave him a boy named Sue complex like you'd never believe. He goes around in leathers, in mirrored sunglasses, in a 50s hot rod, intimidating everybody he passes when not slammed down hard on actual criminals and malfeasance. Needless to say, the homoerotic vibe of this is, woo, over the top. Future wife and Schwarzenegger cast-off, and featured Dolph Lundgren, lady friend. This woman got around the action film star circuit like nobody would believe. Brigitte Nielsen is a witness to a weird-ass cult of motorcycle-riding, double-axe-clanging psychos who go around murdering people just for the Nietzschean-slash-satanic fuck of it. There's really not a lot of plot behind that. Brian Thompson would be a go-to baddie for kickboxing films, Nico Mastarakis films, and more throughout the 80s and 90s, but the sheer entertainment value of seeing this psychotic road cop go up against these clowns crosses the 80s vengeance film with the slasher film in a way you simply don't see very often 
The quotable lines are many, and even more over the top a lot of times than the usual Schwarzenegger-style kill quip. It's as easy to laugh at as it is to laugh with for such a weird-ass dark film. It's actually still one of my three favorite Stallone films. Well, before <laughs> Press Blood Part 2, they wanted Stallone to do Beverly Hills Cup, as I just mentioned, and he bailed on that to do uh, Rhinestone. And so in the middle of all this, while he's doing First Blood, he's returns to thinking about Beverly Hills Cop. So he rewrites the script they give him. Something he's been prone to do, <laughs> now that we know. Except the studio rejected the picture and shelved it. So what does he do? He takes this rewritten script and rewrites it yet again and delivers Cobra, which is, you know, you got this Brian Thompson, who still looks good. I saw him recently, not too long ago. Bridget Nielsen, Renee Santoni. It's like a comic book movie. Yeah. But in a way, I think it's more successful than Streets of Fire. I believe that, yeah. You remember that? Yes, I the do. Walt, the Walter Hill thing? Everybody yeah. talks about that one, but I like Cobra better. You know, I can see what you're talking about, too. Yeah. I, 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 and, and Stallone is doing one of his more dialed-down performances before he ramps it back up for the arm-wrestling picture. Oh, yeah. So uh, next up is another fun one, Over the Top, which is another Menachem Golan film. So, again, we're talking about basically sticking with Golan Globe as canon. It's all the same cut of the mustard. It's a legendarily awful film about a trucker who enters a nationwide arm wrestling competition while trying to win the affections of his estranged military brat's son. There's the usual overly melodramatic complications. His ex-wife is dying, but wants the two of them to reunite, which is very much against the wishes of her rich father. The father more or less kidnaps the kid and ghosts Stallone, which leads to his ramming the gates of their mansion with his big rig, which of course lands him in jail. Gradually, Stallone makes his way through the arm wrestling circuit, which is ridiculously 80s, huge scale, and thronged by huge cheering crowds. You know how everybody laughs at that Nintendo advertisement of a movie, The Wizard, with Fred Savage? It's the same idea. It's fucking arm wrestling contest in a bar, and you've got these people in this one theater, and they're packed out. There was ah, and there's lights going, and it's like you would think it was like a major wrestling event or a boxing event or something. No, it's fucking arm wrestling. (laughs) The kid comes around, the father gives the end, this big happy ending where he wins the contest, he buys a new rig, and he takes this kid off to the glamorous world of roadside weigh-ins, truck stop waitresses and hookers, no dose, and ridiculously low pay. Yay? More hilarious for all the bad, syrupy 80s balladeering on the soundtrack, and the wrestlers that serve as opponents, like Terry Funk, once again. This one always stuck in the memory because there's this hilarious video where scrawny-ass Sammy Hagar, who delivers another of his cheese whiz solo efforts, beats a jacked-up Stallone in arm wrestling, then jumps around celebrating, acting like a little pansy. My father got a huge kick out of this one back in the day. It was pretty damn absurd. His, you know, his arms like toothpicks. <laughs> and Stallone's got these monsters on him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a bad film. Oh, Sammy Hagar, winner takes all. You know, yes. I, I, that was sung by John Wetton from Asia. Did you know that? I didn't know that, really. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> nobody trusted Sammy to sing at that time. Wow. Um, yeah. You can't drive 55 and you can't sing his own song. <laughs> big Troubles on this. Frank against all. Asia actually has a song on there. Eddie Money with the forgettable song that I never even heard of. And Giorgio Moroda. Remember him? Yes, I do. King of Euro Disco. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to make of this thing. I saw Susan Blakely <laughs> said this. So we mentioned her earlier in Capone and the yes. other crossover. I saw it, I and I forgot it. So I could sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> so 
right after this, he goes to Rambo 3. Rambo goes to Afghanistan, and honestly, okay, I said what I said about Rambo, but like I mentioned, it's watchable, it's fun, it is what it is. It definitely kicked off a genre. It's quote-unquote iconic, if you will. This one here, this is where the series stops making sense and just turns this troubled Vietnam vet character into a super soldier for the government. First Blood is dark and gritty. Rambo is 80s and silly. Those two are very watchable films. Rambo 3 is just garbage and not worth the celluloid it was filmed on. I hope you watched the last one I mentioned uh, that you should. Which one? Five. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think I, I told you to watch it. I so think anyway. you wanted to say Rambo on it, which I don't know if it's four or five. So Anyway, so this was directed by Peter McDonald. I like that name. And he's been the uh, cinematographer. This guy did Guardians of the Galaxy, yes. Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, Superman 2, Solar Babies. Shh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was like a go-to. He was, yeah, he was DP, you know, and he was like a camera focus puller. What do those guys do? Hey, turn the dial. <laughs> I For some reason, you know, so, you know, what this sounds to me and what it looks to me is like, Stallone got a guy to direct this movie and he really pulled the shots. This, yeah, the Soviet-Afghan war, this picture fictionalizes the events of that as if we even remember. I, it was so convoluted when it was happening. Yeah. Richard Crenna's back and a bunch of... Kurtwood Smith, who I just mentioned, is, is, is in this. I remember it was the same character that was in another picture. And... Well, yeah, it's fun. It's okay. It's it's over the top action. I I think it didn't do as well as I had hoped. But this is again another holdover from that whole jingoistic Reagan period. You know? So same year, he actually does a really odd and interesting film that's kind of a true blue to a lot of people's hearts. Tango and Cash. Rambo is a pussy. So begins this entertainingly ursass buddy cop film featuring a scenery-chewing Jack Palance, sleaze trio James Hong, Michael J. Pollard, and Clint Howard, all my cameos, the Rondo Hatton of the 90s, Robert Zadar, the ever-annoying Terry Hatcher, surprisingly enough, her most winning, looking for all the world like she came straight out from a Puerto Rican barrio as one of the world's worst strip acts come arrhythmic Sheila E. <laughs> and Snake Plissken himself. It's Kurt Russell in one of his better roles. I'd give it to Escape from New York overboard in this one, though Roadhouse was also okay at the time. These two dirty Harry-like come Miami Vice cops wind up framed by the baddies and thrown in jail, allowing for a sub-women-in-prison thing for a bit. Zadar is one of the belligerent over-actors who wants their blood there before they break out and have to fight to clear their good names. The prison thing is ridiculously overblown in that patented 80s manner again. It's practically an inmate-run event arena where two guys are chained up and tortured with makeshift electrocution and such and takes up way too much time in that narrative for this, leaving only the cutesy introduction to meet the characters, presumably build some attachment to them, and set up a very quick trap and fall before this long, long prison experience and jailbreak. You get about as much time at the end to clear their names as you had before they wound up in court, and we're out of there. It's a strange film. It's like half-lethal weapon, showdown in Little Tokyo or Running Scared, you know, the Crystal Hines film. Mm-hmm. It's a it's kind of buddy cop action comedy. And half-gender-reverse woman in prison film, a bit too dark for its intended lighthearted crowd-pleaser status, 
but way too light and goofy, not to mention bombastic and cartoony, to be taken at all seriously. There's also a hell of a lot of homoerotic content, a lot, from their banter with each other and others in the cast, to the drag sequence and obligatory sour scenes. I Honestly, I really could have done without seeing their weirdly shaped hairless asses, but hey, teachers on. Still in all, there's just too much goodwill and fun dialogue here not to like it, for all its bizarreness. I mean, I like this a whole hell of a lot more than it sounds like from what I wrote here. My wife also enjoys this one, obviously. And further mention, it may have been one of the first superhero films, which I thought was interesting, in that they each have dedicated super baddies, you know, Zadarfus alone, that ugly bastard with the silver teeth for Russell, and sidekicks. Brian James, yeah. And they each have their own sidekicks. Russell has Pollard as like an M-type delivering these sub-Bonnie and gadgets. And his, his buddy, the assistant warden, who gives him the escape plan, Hatcher sort of serves as the distant member of the partnership, as well as love interest and little sister. Yes, it's an incestuous little family with a weird subtext about sublimating their attraction through a girl they each have a part of. So there you go again. Not to mention a funky Punisher slash Batman type tricked out van. It's the weirdest buddy cop film you're likely to see this side of Dead Heat, if you remember that one, but even more likable for it. So it, it is a winner. Oh, yeah. Win win all around. And, uh,. You get to see naked sly and Kurt Russell in the same movie. What do you want? Where they then, in the shower scene, like comment on each side. Remember this? Oh. There is so much homoerotic content in this film, you would not believe it. If you are of that persuasion, if you get off on that, if you are bisexual, if you are bi-curious, this is the film for you. <laughs> I mean, it's full of it. But, but, you know, what you didn't mention, though, at all, shame on you. Is that is that Kurt Russell's? It's actually playing like the jacked up Bragaccio Stallone part. Oh yeah, and Stallone is Stallone's playing like the more dialed down Jack Russell kind of wise ass guy. Very true. With glasses. With glasses, and he's they keep saying like, oh, you dress like a banker. So yeah. he's, he's that kind of role. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, he's he's, he's playing like K- Kurt Russell's if Kurt was doing one of his more you know kind of calmer nerdy on the outside but you know superhero guy on the inside parts in that respect it reminded me of neighbors the uh john belushi dan Aykroyd film that was actually supposed to be dan Aykroyd playing the neighbor that was much put upon by the crazy it would have been john belushi but belushi's like no i want to do something different he started doing things like northern divide or whatever the hell that yeah where he was trying to break continental divide continental divide thank you where he's trying to break character. I don't always want to be the funny, crazy guy. Let me do something different. So he took that role and flipped it. And, you know, it works, it doesn't work, too, depending on how you look at it. But same idea here. I think Stallone was trying to do that. Let me not be that guy for a change. You take that role, and I'll try to do something different. And, you know, it works. So It works. Yeah, it works. Some odd, I mean, it's a very odd movie, though, because yeah. I, I interviewed Brian James and... and God, how many years ago was that? In the late 90s. And they asked him about this movie. And I said, so what's up with the Cockney accent? Your your, your character has such a amplified, obvious... It's pronounced, yeah. Yeah. And he goes, well, I came in and I read for this part. And they said, how do you want to play this? And he says, well, I could do like this. And he says, okay, do, do it like that. And he was telling me every day they were constantly rewriting a script, rewriting a script, rewriting a script. He says, oh, you know that bit I do with the knife in Jack Palance's place? He does does some kind of thing with his knife where he's lucky he didn't cut his fingers off. Oh, he made that up on the spot, and they loved it, so they kept it in. But then you got the other guy, which is Robert Zidar. Uh, uh, You know, bless his heart. You know, he's the guy who tried to... Well, he did. He made a career out of looking weird um <laughs> benny the jet is in this thing yes 
Ben and uh, Jitter Kiedis. Yeah. Clint Howard. I mean, what a cast of oddballs. Oh, let's not forget Michael J. Pollard. Yep. Uh, James Hong, Jeffrey Lewis. Damn. I have yet to see one of those James Hong's pornos that you mentioned. <laughs> don't want to. <laughs> I probably don't. <laughs> Morbid curiosity. I'm like, really? Well, he, well, he doesn't act. Well, he acts in them, but he doesn't perform in the big <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Next up, he does something that, again, what a strange attempt here. Oscar, mm. uh, where he plays Angelo Snaps Provolone. I'm not kidding you. It's a John Landis picture. All right. Sasha Mitchell, the kickboxer sequels, was actually Stallone's limo driver and car washer during this period. And he talked about this, uh, how he was trying to break into films after this. All I can say about this movie is wow. Anybody who knows me knows how much I love talkies. You know, from the dawn of the medium in 1929 until the Hays Code started boulderizing everything to make it safe for middle American housewives. I watch and enjoy just about anything from horror, mysteries, to screwball comedies. This stuff's just great. So here comes John Landis, the guy behind Kentucky Fried Movie, American World from London, the Blues Brothers, Trading Places. He decides to work an adaptation of a late 60s French comedy nobody ever heard of about a gangster with a crazy family trying to go straight. He flips it to Italian mobsters and sets it up like a vintage early 30s screwball comedy. And Stallone's in it. And one of my cinematic dream girls, Princess Aura herself, Ornella Muthi's in it. Damn, you know, this one might actually really be good. No, this is the John Landis of Spies Like Us, 1941 and Eating Raul. Not even the one who gives big flops with a cult following like Clue or Amazon Woman on the Moon or forgotten but entertaining ones like Into the Night. This is the guy who couldn't find a good joke for a bit him on the ass. Worse, Muthi, who's actually eight or nine years older, but it looks at least a decade younger than Marisa Tomei, is playing her daughter. I'll say, huh? And Tomei, let's just say that her reputation as a total bitch on set was not the only reason her career was a flash in the pan after My Cousin Vinny. It's quite possibly the worst acting I've ever seen in a mainstream film from her. Stallone is fair enough in the role. Landis almost succeeds in evoking the tropes of the period here. And there's a lot of bits of business thrown in that at least feel authentically Italian. So it's not as bad as his reputation, but what's that saying? In terms of Stallone comedies, unintentional or no, this is unquestionably the rock-bottom nadir. By Landis standards, it's pretty standard, which says a lot about its worth to the ages. I did enjoy it, but wow, what, what a film. <laughs> well, surprisingly, it's not as bad as, as you would think it would be. I mean, you know, you, the cast is fully loaded. You have Tim Curry, Jazz Parmenteri. Uh, Don Amici, Avanda Carlo. Uh, Harry Shearer, uh, Kirk Douglas playing his father. <laughs> but um, you know what I, I have a bit of a not that it's a go to movie or it ever would be but I have a bit of a soft spot for this movie because it's actually you would you would approach it saying oh this has got to be a terrible piece of shit and it's actually pretty good in terms of being entertaining and it could have been far 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 worse so I'm giving this a pass it's a, it's a fun film Despite how it sounds, I actually did, I was entertained by it because it was pretty damn faithful to the tropes of the era. It feels a bit like a 30s screwball comedy. It's just, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. <laughs> so, anyway, and the jokes are bad. So, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, speaking of bad films that I enjoy. Directed by Roger Spottiswood. It's another one of those worst alone film efforts that I get a good laugh out of. It's nowhere near as much as Rhinestone or Cobra. It's not even half as funny or incredibly endearing either, but it's still bad enough to be amusing in a weird way. If you have, and this goes down to you personally, listeners, if you've ever had a Jewish or Italian mother, you know exactly where this film's going from minute one. 
Mom drops by her adult son's place and starts taking over to the point where she's interfering in his day job, getting in on his investigations and hostage situations. It's supposed to be endearing how she's making him lunches, telling embarrassing baby and childhood stories to all his friends, solving the problems of suicidal jumpers. But it really just makes you want to strangle the old bitch. She's such a pain in the ass busybody. My wife in particular hates this film for that very reason, because of my mother. Because, you know, time mother-in-law, like I said, stars one of the Golden Girls, and of all people, Ving Rhames. And it's every bit as terrible as you've heard, which means crack out the beers and bring over your pals. It's time to have a good laugh on Stallone for ever starring in this one. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, it's it just, really is. It's, it's a bad movie. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think she's the where's the beef lady, but if no. you remember those Wendy's commercials, I think it was Wendy's. Where's the beef? Clara Peller, yeah. No, yeah. this is, uh, who the hell is still Getty? Yeah. was one of the Golden Girls, yeah. yeah she's actually the youngest one, but they made the oldest. <laughs> she's probably the only one alive. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know who she was. I was just kidding. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you can't, you can't, like, smash cars and make, genres combined. You can't like get stolen from Cobra and Stop Raw shoot you in the mouth and somebody <laughs> from the Golden Girls and and kind of force crash these things together. It just doesn't work. And right on the hills of this other comedic <laughs> thing, it was not a good idea. So for no. a little period of time he had a little blip. Yep. Stone so was mocked at this period for sure. <laughs> but he bounced back big time with one of his best freaking movies. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but it definitely was a major success for him. And it was definitely a comeback. It was, it was seen as Luke Stallone's comeback here after some really questionable films. Cliffhanger. Rennie Harlan, of all people, directed this one. Janine Turner, briefly hot due to Northern Exposure. Briefly. The, briefly. Plays one of the iciest heroines. Briefly. In, in action film history. Six weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's why. She is one of the iciest heroines in action film history, hands down. They are married chopper pilots and mountain climbers until Stallone manages Isn't to drop everyone? a newbie. <laughs> until Stallone manages to drop a newbie out on the slopes. Cue the usual mix of self-doubt, relationship issues, and friends turning against you. As things turn out, he gets recruited to facing his fears and settling all these long-standing issues when a bunch of hijackers crash in the mountains and Stallone has to save the day. It's watchable, but bubblegum. There's very little dialogue and a lot of faux tension serving as action. The entire film was pretty much recreated and topped in about a half an hour of the last Mission Impossible movie, which is probably why this one's been so forgotten. But at the time, it was a huge deal. John Lithgow's in it. Paul Winfield's in it. That's about all you can say for it. But there's no question. People looked at this as, oh, look, he just saved himself because we thought he was really bottoming out, especially after things like, you know, Over the Top and Oscar and Cobra and Stop My Mom Will Shoot. Well, you know what? I, I like this a lot. I mean, Michael Rooker, who, coming off of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, a couple of things a few years earlier, was looking for a picture to kind of stretch a little bit. And uh, I thought him him and Stallone made a really good buddy team, if a little forced. But this is not bad. This is one, you know, if you're going to want me to be totally honest, I think it's one of those better Ronnie Harlan pictures. It's probably one of those Ronnie Harlan movies that got Ronnie Harlan solidified in Hollywood for a couple of years, if not a decade or more, as like the go-to guy for less than A movies. But, uh, you know, like he did some really interesting freaking work, man. He did that movie with Treat Williams and the bizarre, uh, I know it was Stephen Somers, but he did something I liked about sharks and shit like that. I like Cliffhanger, and um, 
mountain climbing. You know, Stallone was looking really good in this. He pumped up and he got athletic because I'm sure this looked like it was a hard shoot. This does not look like it was studio-based at all. And I believe a lot of it was done in France and Italy in the mountains. It's an entertaining picture. But I think the fact that it was topped in a half an hour of the new Mission Impossible movie says a lot for its status in history. At the time, it was mm. a big deal, and it certainly saved Stallone's career. But, you know, now you look at it, it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, you just said something, though. It, it was topped in the new Mission Impossible movie. This is a 1993 picture. Mm-hmm. It took until 2018 so somebody could top that. Yeah, so I'll agree with that. I still give a kudos. It's it's a fun, enjoyable picture. So next up, we come to the real ringer in his catalog, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it says, A police officer has brought out a suspended animation in prison to pursue an old, ultra-violent nemesis who is loose in a politically correct, non-violent future society with weird toilets. For years prior to this, my all-time favorite Stallone film was Rhinestone. Ever since, this one has been it. And more than just a favorite Stallone film, it's one of those films so central to my DNA that it's a source of incessant quotes and perhaps it even informs my worldview to some extent. Conan, They Live, and Demolition Man. There you go. What's scary is how much of this fucking film came true. The weak, effeminate culture of victimization and Orwellian oversight, ruining lives and careers over mere words, the stupid commercial jingles as pop music. Think about that. Even Taco Bell's takeover is the only food source restaurant. Did you see how they were just voted the best Mexican food in the U.S.? Have you seen how every local restaurant around you goes under, leaving us with only the big chains? Anyway, Stallone is another Cobra-esque cop chasing after a wisecracking psycho, Wesley Snipes, probably the best film that guy ever did, who sets him up by hiding dozens of hostages in the building he knows is going down, either by his hand or Stallone's. When backup arrives, he does the big reveal, pretending Stallone knew all along and didn't care, so both of them wind up in cryogenic rehabilitation, which is like what they did to the Droogs in Clockwork Orange, or what they did to our nation in the early 90s with political correctness, victim culture, intersectionalism, triggering, and safe spaces. Take your pick. Snipes winds up reactivated, complete with all sorts of helpful knowledge he shouldn't have in this new Orwellian safe space where people are, quote, low-jacked, and fine for just cussing and everything's boulderized into Disney-style celebration, USA kid-friendly, social-engineered totalitarianism. And these wimped-out sissies simply can't handle a violent, effusive 20th-century nutjob like him, so they unfreeze Stallone as well. There's a cute, budding relationship between 20th-century fangirl Sandra Bullock and honestly her all-time most endearing, and she's damn cute here to boot. And Stallone, and a lot of comedy where he has to adjust to this new, weirdly uptight and strangely small world, but he turns out still to be the right man for the job. In the end, it turns out the whole PC shtick was nothing more than a deliberate bid to take over the world. And Stallone and Bullock discover an underground resistance movement led by none other than the abrasive but dead-on libertarian Dennis Leary. And with their help and a lot of old-fashioned piss and vinegar, the film ends with the hope of a new and more balanced day, more along the lines where things were heading back in the late 80s, before Clintonism pissed all over everyone's heads and turned the whole world into identity politics-obsessed whiners, afraid to even speak without crucible-style censure. Yeah, I love this film. The only parts that drag are when it gives into expectations, it turns into a bit of a generic action film towards the end, but a great film. I love this fucking movie, if you can't tell. Wow. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, what I'm really curious about is how this movie would have turned out had they actually gone through with, you know, Jackie Chan was supposed to originally play Simon Phoenix. Really? Yeah. And and they got really further along in negotiations, and then Jackie pulled out because he didn't want to be a villain. So that would have been interesting because that would have been definitely one of Jackie Chan's earlier serious roles. 
Uh, Sandra Bullock actually was a last-minute replacement for Laurie Petty. You know, the complete disaster from... Oh, God, thank God they replaced her. Uh, tank Girl. Tank Girl. Tank girl. Yeah. Yeah, a complete alcoholic now. I can see that because <laughs> she she was at a, a at a particular show. I was in where she paid the bartender to go behind the bar and make her own drinks. Oh, so, yeah, where is she now? Aside from oddball things like Benjamin Bratt and Bob Gutten, they like Bob Gutten and Glenn Shadix. You Glenn know, Shadix from Beetlejuice. Yeah, yeah, all these. David Patrick Kelly from the Warriors, uh, Jack Black, Jesse Ventura, Dennis Leary, Glenn Shaddix. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a strange cast. It is. It is. It's a very strange movie. I'm not quite sure how you feel about this film. I've seen it several times. I saw it when it first came out, and I think the director, a uh, Italian-born video collage artist, how did he get this movie? It's one of two movies he made in his life. Go figure. Very strange. Sometimes you don't have to be a Hollywood movie maker to make a film of interest. There's a lot of them out there. But I, I, I just don't know how I feel about this picture. So next up, he does The Specialist. Mm. Between James Woods and Eric Roberts, I want to know, how much was the carrying budget just from Blow? <laughs> Seriously, this is one weird fucking film. Apparently, they weren't sure whether to make it was one of those Skinamax faux erotica films, a neat noir, or a typical action film because the tone keeps shifting between these three. Sharon Stone, the Joan Collins of America who basically slept her way around Hollywood for years, never making any major headway until at an age where conventional wisdom of the time said you're washed up, strikes gold by flashing her bristly dyed snatch and basic instinct. Suddenly, there's Sharon Stone directed video films popping up everywhere. What's wrong with that? <laughs> And her career pretty much peaks with big hits, quote-unquote, like Sliver, Casino, Last Action Hero, and a bad remake of Diabolique. So during her 90 minutes of fame, we get this oddball celebration of phone sex, where the two leads never actually meet, but there's a lot of peeping through window blinds and bushes at each other, and mumbly, quote, steamy phone calls. Well, they do actually meet, but only for a really ridiculous sex scene about an hour and 15 minutes in to an hour and 45 minute picture, you know, just like Sliver. It's some bullshit about her witnessing her folks getting taken out by mobsters, hilariously overacted by future Trump bootlicker James Woods, and his look-like pal Coke King Eric Roberts. Rod Steiger's here is sort of a recurring cameo, but he's so old, bald, and round-headed, I could think he was Stan Lee. <laughs> about the only scene in this film that works seems completely absurd and out of place, where Stallone offers a seat to an old lady only to have it stolen by some troublemaking cholos, who he proceeds to hyper-violently pummel into submission. One even gets thrown through the window, but no charges or problems ensue. My guess, Stallone was feeling sidelined with nothing to do but stare and sigh through the whole picture, so he demanded one action scene and threw a lot of frustration into it. It's even got a weird Bernard Herrmann-style soundtrack, as if this were a Hitchcock film instead of another Let's Ogle Sharon Stone piece of crap, which is what it actually is. Oh, it's one strange movie that doesn't work, although there's one similar one the next year I actually like quite a lot. This is by Louise Loza, who did uh, Sniper, which was a pretty popular Tom Berenger picture for a while, and... It was about, you know, some sort of like a latter day, let's go to, to Vietnam and rescue people or shoot people. I don't fucking remember anymore. <laughs> but you're right, though. There, there seems to be a disconnect between all the major cast in this picture interacting with one another. Yeah. I think Sly tries. I'm going to call him Sly. I think he tries. Uh, Sharon Stone, who you're way too harsh on, young man. <laughs> It's okay, uh, but yeah, you got some oddball cast members, James Woods, Eric Roberts, I already mentioned, Red Spot Steiger. It looks like a movie where a lot of people couldn't agree on something. 
on the terrible score you mentioned was by John Barry. Wow. Yeah, wow. Well, I, films, yeah. Right, right. That's that's a big wow there. What, what we have here is a movie about two CIA guys who uh, Woods and Stallone working on explosives, South American drug dealers, years later, blah, 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 blah. Things come back and bite them. Mysterious woman shows up. And yes, there's a lot of phoning on, uh, a lot of phone calls and a lot of back and forth. And it feels like a movie cobbled together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it didn't do so well. Well, I have to correct myself. It did very well. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think it would do well. $45 million budget and made 180 Everybody was still hot in Sharon Stone at that point. All her crap sold. Well, remember, she did Sliver. You mentioned Sliver. And Sliver was the picture she did with one of the Baldwin yes. brothers. I think Steven, I think. Oh, Steven, right. And that was a movie about the uh, guy that was stalking women. And uh, her character was really into anal sex. <laughs> and I came out of that theater going, well, it's the first Hollywood movie I saw that was like, trying to ex-hamster the world. Wasn't that Joe Esterhaus? <laughs> that was one of his. It might have been. I think he did do the script. Yeah. I don't remember who directed it. Who cares? <laughs> this was a mess. So bad that even the poster for this yes. thing was terrible. You had a bad angle shot of Stallone. And it's just like everybody here has done better mm-hmm. work elsewhere. So there's that. So next up, he does another real stinker. Judge Dredd. Yeah. The very 80s British comic character whose strip introduced the world to Brian Boland and inspired at least one Anthrax song is let down massively by this decade and a half too late no-budget action cheese fest. You get the distinct impression they were trying to keep hitting this SF action mark that Demolition Man exploited so well, but the feel mm. is very wrong, despite the presence of arthouse heavy hitters like Max von Sydow, Das Boots Jorgen Prochnow, who'd further prostitute himself in Uwe Boll's hilariously fun House of the Dead next decade. John Chang. And, yes, and Asante, Armand um, Asante, plus Diane Lane, who was big a decade prior for Streets of Fire, is too serious by far, and yet never recaptured the eerie gravitas or grim post-apocalyptic film of the original 2008 strip. And where the hell was Judge Death or Judge Anderson in all this? Stallone is too human to play Dread, and yet to those who aren't close enough to the original source material, he comes off too cold and goofily stiff, yelling about the law the whole time. Moncito acts circles around everyone without even trying, but the film just doesn't work. Plus, it closes on a wholly inappropriate, entirely out-of-place song from The Cure. Really? Well, first of all, everybody knows that Dread was done much better in 2012 by Alex Garland and Pete Travis. It was it starred Carl Urban, of all people, and that's a great film. So if you haven't seen Dread, that's really Judge Dread, and cinematically at least. And you've seen that, right? No, I haven't. Where you been, man? i got to take a look at that now. you got to take a look at that. Remember Redemption? Yeah. Okay, the... Um, the Indonesian picture by Gareth Hunt. Okay, the first one. It's very much like that. Judge Dredd enters this this building block and he has to work his way up. It's 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 hyperviolent. It's very Judge Dredd. I'm surprised you didn't see it. No, no. Well, now you know. I was probably turned off by this one. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, they've been trying to reboot that, sequelize it, or do something with it since. Meanwhile, let's go back to this one. Yeah, it's strangely off. Excited I was, you know to speak. Excited I was. And so I saw it in the theater. And I was like, wow, it's Judge Dredd. And way off, it, it, it should have should have been stopped 
probably about two weeks into shooting. You know, Stallone was bellowing. Something he really does in a picture, except, you know, when it's called for, and he's, he's bellowing his lines. Most of the picture, he's covered. His face is covered. Not mid, mid, midway till he lets it out. Fellow bellower, Armand DeSante, <laughs> is also... He's, he's, he, you know, Armand can deliver one of his I-don't-give-a-fuck-unhinged performances, and so that's going on here, too. So you got everybody just standing around on the edge of the movie going, all right, I'll just sit back, and you guys can finish shouting, and then we'll come in and do our part. It's a mess all the way around. It pretty much put a huge dent in the Stallone train mm-hmm. for a while. It's all, I do want to point out, it was very violent, too, for its time, very dystopian, too, in its outlook. So there were just things that the, the filmmakers just couldn't grasp on. Danny Cannon, who directed it, of all things, has a career of doing a lot of TV. He's made very few films, actually. He did I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. We all remember that. But prior to Judge Dredd, he just did, like, CSI Crime, CSI Miami, CSI Did Your Mom, CSI Did Your Brother. (laughs) And this goes on and on and on and on and on. Now he's working on Gotham, which is about the only work you can get after Judge Dredd. (laughs) <laughs> so, which Gotham sucks, by the way, folks. I saw one of the first episodes and I couldn't take it. With Judge Dredd out of the way and this labyrinthian long show I knew it was going to be, we, we come to a film I quite like a lot, Assassins. What do you think? Yeah, that's the trick. I had seen it many years ago. I had decent memories of it, and I didn't think it was crap, but I was unable to get a copy to see for the show. So I'll have to leave it to you except to say that Antonio Banderas is the co-star in this one, the co-assassin, if you will. And Julianne Moore, believe it or not, is the love interest. So, go ahead. I like this one. I, 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 where I'm going to pick up from you on this is that, like you, I saw this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have a fond memory, and I just had no detailed things I could recall. So, whoa, it happened to be on one of the streaming things. And I said, well, in preparation for the show, so let me watch this again. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Not only... Did it, it's by Richard Donner, of all people. Yes. I was like, well, it's one of the few times these guys work together. The script is by the Wachowskis, now known as Lana and Lily, and Brian Helgeland, who did uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Night's Tale. And he probably did other things, but I don't care. I like that movie. And so you got Antonio Banderas coming off of Desperado two years previous. Uh, yeah, and, you know, Julianne Moore is in this, but actually she was quite good because what she was doing in here was something really interesting, playing kind of like your nerdy, cat-loving tech person. Mm-hmm. And so that cat has a big part in this movie. still has to save a cat. Hey, win-win. So I like this. It's it's odd. The script is odd. Stallone is a paid assassin. Right away, they opened the, I, I think Donner wanted to do something different with him. Right away, they opened the movie. He's reticent. He's... he's He's retired in the fashion. What I mean is that he's he's an assassin, but he's like he's just calmed down in life. He doesn't want to do this anymore, and you really get that. He only wants to do one more job. And whoever the mysterious person is that keeps messaging him to tell him he's got another job, but we're never quite sure that is until much much later in the film. So he he has to do these jobs and make a lot of money and blah blah blah. And it involves I don't know Dutch. Cold Pirates, Interpol, the CIA, the Spanish South American, 
blah, blah, blah. It's actually fairly viable when you're watching it. It's like, okay, I can buy this. Banderas turns up as one of his, uh, you know, no holds barred until early Antonio Banderas roles, where it's like, wow, he's like a match that you can't put out. And I didn't mind Julianne Moore. They have absolutely no romantic or sexual chemistry in the movie, which is interesting. <laughs> but it's supposed to be that way. She's just a woman with a cat. That <laughs> He's fucking laughing. I kid you not. She's a woman with a cat who's like this nerdy tech person who's trying to make a lot of money because she knew how to do stuff. And yet, he decides to help her. A little bit of redemption for himself. So it's like they're not supposed to have any kind of chemistry. And then she tries to fuck him over, which I found really interesting. So I really, this one you didn't catch, and, and I really enjoyed this. And it's funny yeah, you know, watching the end credits, like, blah, blah, blah. It was some wimpy music song thing. I was like, screenplay by the Wachowskis? What the hell? So, there's that. <laughs> so, he kind of continues in this ghetto of weird films with things like Daylight, I love Daylight. Copland, where he actually famously gained like 40 or 50 pounds to do the role. But Daylight, oh. Daylight. You saw Daylight. No, I don't remember. Oh, God. Oh, my God, I have to carry this part. <laughs> Daylight is a great action movie and disaster film. It's about the Holland Tunnel. These guys are trying to carry explosives through the Holland Tunnel. And the, um, something, well, they're not supposed to. We know this. But then something happens and it blows up in portions. He's an ex-engineer that something bad happened years ago. And he feels responsible and people held him responsible for some deaths. He's nearby and he tries to get into the Holland Tunnel to rescue people. Nobody wants him to do it because, like, killed people sort of maybe before because he was involved and you got like Viggo Mortensen and Dan Hedaya Stan Shaw Karen Young a bunch of mid-90s people in this thing it's some terrific stuff and he's really good in this I highly recommend Daylight and I liked it a lot so like I said Copland where he had famously gained like 40-50 pounds to take the role which you saw uh, no I did not I didn't even want to see that one ever Shame on you, you bastard. Oh, this is bad. No, you, Copland is one of Sylvester Stallone's best roles. He gained a lot of weight. He plays a cop, let me see, what's on the other side of Tappan Zee Bridge? What's that? Like Sleepy Hollow? Up yeah, that's going to Nyack and Sleepy Hollow, like you said. Eh? All right, Nyack. Okay, so he's like a cop as a sheriff up there. And you got all these New York City cops, Harvey Cartel, Ray Liotta. Peter Berg, Robert Patrick, Michael Rappaport, all these guys are living up there. And he's partly deaf, still on. And they just think he's a bumpkin. And, you know, they're just running ramshot all over, all over town. Back in New York, they're on the take, and they start getting worse and worse in his hometown. And so what happens is De Niro plays a, uh, I think a DA or, or a, a Fed who tries to convince Stallone to rat on these guys. You know, take them down. He's like, no, I'm not so sure because these guys are powerful cops in New York. And that's what it's about. It's really good. It's a drama. It's like Scorsese, who you don't seem to like. It's yeah. that kind of thing. That's why I don't watch it. <laughs> oh, if I recommend it, you won't watch it? You bastard. No, it was, it was because it was one of those Scorsese type films. It's a drama, like you said. Method it's acting. Yeah, it's a whatever. good drama. It's a good drama. Come on. So he continues with weird things with things like an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, which was tanked right as soon as it came out in theaters. Critics hated that one. The Good Life. He starts doing voiceovers for Disney films like Ants. I think it's actually Pixar, but same idea. And he does Get Carter, which, all right, if you've seen the original Get Carter, it's an entertaining enough, I wouldn't call it great, 
But, you know, for the time period, it was kind of visually arresting and long periods of action and movement, framing without dialogue, with Michael Caine. And he goes back, finds out his brother got killed and wound up doing, like, porno films or some crap and got murdered by this mob. So he's, of course, the next mobster himself. And he comes back and basically takes everybody down, finds out what's going on, and takes down the responsible parties. All right, whatever. Typical for its era. Has some nice visuals. Enough said. Well, they decided to remake this one and put it in Las Vegas and made this guy Stallone. Whew. Well, typical Hollywood remake bullshit. Trying to reinvent the wheel to lesser effect. Here they take an early 70s British crime film with big names like Michael Caine, who gets what more or less amounts to a cameo in this version, Britt Eklund and Ian Hendry. The earlier film was somewhat ahead of its time, being quite dark and violent for the time, and using a lot of unusual photography, long periods of silence, and interesting set pieces that felt almost policial touchy, but hailing before that genre really kind of kicked into gear. The remake? Generic bullshit for the Too Fast, Too Furious crowd. About the best you can say is that a visibly aging, rather scruffy and dirty-looking Stallone runs around in a nice Italian silk suit throughout. Otherwise, it's pretty damn forgettable and pointless. Alan Cumming, Nightcrawler from the X-Men films, runs around in the world's gayest cowboy hat and poncho, as of all things, a golfer. Stallone is subdued and unimpressive, where Kane was seething and explosive. To put a pin in this one, Hollywood blows. Well, I disagree with you, man, who didn't see Copland. <laughs> so I would say, I actually enjoyed this. I, I watched this two or three times. Really? And I, I liked it the same about each time. I thought that I liked the scruffy, kind of dialed-down Stallone. This is a period of time he was doing more reserved kind of acting. And, um, yeah, it's not the Gary Carter we knew, but I enjoyed it. There was a seediness. There was still a seedy thing going on here. Yeah, he's a mob enforcer, and he gets involved with stuff. You know what? It, I like parts. I wouldn't call them anti-heroes in these kind of movies, but I like the roles where the guy's per capacity kills people. You see it on the screen, and you're like, oh, I don't know. Is this the guy you're rooting for? And then comes an epiphany moment where he says, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then he tries to be a hero, sort of self-redemption. So that's what I saw in this movie, and I actually kind of liked it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a long period here where he does a lot of questionable things. Again, another kid's film, Spy Kids 3. Weird stuff. He does Rocky Balboa, which you had mentioned earlier. He does the 2008 Rambo, which I saw and said... Actually, my comment was, what were we saying about Rambo 3? It's a series that should have died in 1985 when it was still a duet. Well, It's on, really not that great. Hold on. I think it's terrific. Really? I think it's terrific. I think it's... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Were you in a bad mood when you watched this? I, I think it just didn't work. I thought it was... this is the one where he goes to Thailand. Yes, he's the beefy. He's beefy now. It's 2008, so he's beefy now, and he's kind of he's surly, and he's like uncommunicative, and he's handling snakes. You remember that? He's handling yep. snakes for a living, like doing like whatever the fuck he's doing. <laughs> and and the, the missionaries, the missionaries, right? The missionaries come by. Like, can you take us down river? You know, I guess sort of some kind of a holocaust. <laughs> but he's like, no, I don't want to do that. You know. So, and they go down there. They get captured by the the, the Thai guard, and you know, like raped and butchered and all kinds of shit, made slaves. It's pretty raw. I thought it was pretty raw. Come on, man. It was raw. I was just, you know, I but then work. he decides, to, and then when he takes his comeuppance. He gets these brutal military weapons and literally cuts people apart. Come on, that's, that's so cathartic. You just like that, like, gruesome, you know, sweaty, oh. gritty, ultra-violence, and I'm just like, you know, No, whatever. I don't. It's not, it's not like that. I just thought that, like, <laughs> we need a hero so, so now and then. And, and 
I don't know. I was on I was on key point with this. I saw this about five times already. I liked it. So yeah. here's what I think you were waiting for, because we're getting close to the end finally. 2010, he does The Expendables. Yes. Big cast. We all wanted this kind of movie, didn't we? Big cast. Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham, Jet Li, Dolph Lundgren. I think unique to the films, I bolded a couple people that I don't think reappear. This one is Eric Roberts, Steve Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Mickey Rourke, Bruce Willis. Basically, the Planet Hollywood partners make a movie. It's a cheesy starfucker affair with some really terrible, predictable direction on this one, and a lot of inside jokes. You know, Schwarzenegger's political career, the Rambo films. It seems to be shot on HD video with some really bad shaky cam and processed sort of fight sequences. There's a lot of explosions. There's minimal dialogue. There's obvious overstated and overdramatic scoring, etc. But oddly, most of the film is taken up by Stallone and Statham versus Robertson Austin, while Will is Schwarzenegger and Rourke are more or less effective walk-ons. Lundgren's a de facto baddie. Jet Li only comes in to some scene time pretty late in the film. It's not the worst attempt to recreate this 80s action B-film you'll ever see by a long shot, but it misses the mark by a wide margin, especially once you get to the torture and implied gang rape scene. If you dig this, you're in it to see all these old movie tough guys all in the same picture, kind of nudging and winking at each other, waiting to see who will be the next cameo or bit part. It's not really for the the exciting plot or the terse direction, neither of which actually exists. What movie did you watch? <laughs> I thought this was a lot of fun. What are you kidding me? We waited all our life for this thing. I know you love it. No, I, I thought, yeah, it's true. Stallone and Jason Statham definitely have most of the key banter and dialogue, and, and I never knew these guys got along so well. And it's, it's kind of fun. Jet Lee and Dolph. Dolph is not the bad guy. This. Jet Lee and Dolph have a lot of also back and forth dialogue. Dolph doesn't agree with a lot of things, making him like the guy we don't trust for most of the movie. Exactly. They make him like the de facto bad guy, but he's really not. He's really end, not so. at the end. And it's, not, it's cute to see him, you know, in diminutive Jet Li trying to go at it. Gary Daniels is in this thing. Terry Crews, who's in all the pictures, I think. Mickey Rourke, I think is only in this one. Willis and Schwarzenegger are also in this. It's a fun... It's like a great assist hits of action movies. I didn't dislike it as much you did. So I enjoyed the hell out of it. So he does another kids movie voiceover for Zookeeper. And then it's The Expendables 2. The unique people I believe in this one was Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who plays the villain, and Charisma Carpenter from uh, Buffy is in this briefly. And also I think she did that spin-off Angel. And I said, oof, whether you like the first one or not, this one's a real stinker. Van Damme comes in as the baddie. Most of the cast is either walk-on or totally marginalized. And nothing much happens. It's the nobody team member gets killed, and Stallone and Statham, along with a few stragglers, get revenge. It really fails at what they're trying to do with this 80s movie homage thing. It's overly grim, and this one here is just kind of bleh. I mean, thankfully the next one would almost make up for the last two, comparatively speaking. But if you're going to watch them, go to one and then go to three. If you want to go back to two, that's, that's your issue. <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> I like this one. That's it. That's really good. That's a lot of fun. Is it your favorite? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> of the three, yeah. You know why? Because I, I, I thought I thought Mel Gibson was way over the top in part three. I liked how Van Damme was just being a uh, a quiet psychopath with a knife in this picture. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he really likes to play with a knife. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed Van Damme's uh, whatever the hell he was doing in this picture, and um, <laughs> Scott Adkins, who I've been promoting this guy for years, is Van Damme's uh, second in command, and he, he's a lot of fun in this thing too. 
Yunana's Maggie Chan, who has like distinguished Stallone, but then disappeared by the time of the third movie. I'm never quite sure what happened there. No, it, it's uh, you know out of one, two, and three, I like two the best. But we're gonna go to bullet to the head. Did you see that? I did not see it, but you got Christian Slater in it, which does a lot. But uh, no, he's, it's a small part. Actually, Bullet to the Head is a Walter Hill picture that got mixed reviews. But I was really curious to see this thing. I've seen it twice already. I thought it's really good. A cut, not not a bulk up, but a cut Stallone, heavily tattooed. It's just like Hitman, mainly working in the South, New Orleans area, and a. Uh, is involved with nasty types. And this uh, Korean, South Korean policeman has been assigned to investigate something. They they kind of work in tandem and together. Jason Momoa, that big hulking beast of a guy, he's in this thing as the villain. I could take that guy either way. You know, it's, he, he makes no impression on me like, oh, he's Aquaman so what? Who cares? I like this a lot. Jason Slater, who you name check, just plays an evil guy who's like a smarmy, typical Jason Slater, the guy, and he gets so his comeuppance. This is one of the better late period Stallone movies, and I highly recommend it. Walter Hill, people, check it out. So after uh, doing some oddities like Escape Plan, a Saturday Night oh. Live appearance. Wait, wait, see, you, you didn't see a lot of the later pictures. Yes. Shame on you. Escape Plan is interesting. You have an aging Stallone, an aging Schwarzenegger, we're talking 2013, yep. who are incarcerated in this futuristic prison. Think something like, uh, remember Face Off, the prison scene? Yes, I do. They were like that kind of futuristic prison thing there. Thing is, Stallone had designed it. And he was framed, so it's why he's in prison. And Schwarzenegger's like a long-time guy who's one of the most powerful men in the world, but became an inmate. So these two guys join forces to get the hell out of this prison. Uh, you got a lot of interesting people here. You got like uh, 50, 50 Cent and Sam Neill and Vinnie Jones and Vincent D'Onofrio. And uh, lots, of, lots of interesting people who can act. And it's actually not a bad picture. Much better than Escape Plan 2, which I would not recommend to anyone. <laughs> so, yeah, he does a Saturday Night Live thing, he does Crudge Match, and then The Expendables 3, which Wait, is... I have to do it again. So, Grudge Match is an older Stallone versus De Niro, who won an Academy Award for Raging Bull as a boxer. These two guys re-team to play boxers going up against one another. It's terrible. I wish it was so much better. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Fun supporting cast, LL Cool J, John Bernthal, Walking Dead, Kim Basinger, Alan Arkin. It should have been like Rocky versus who, uh, Jake LaMotta, right? And it just, it's played for less, and then it's played very bittersweet. And then it's played very, uh, how do I say, uh, ironic. You know, so and then you, uh, what do they do is they mark it as a comedy. It's not really a comedy. So you're watching this picture for two hours and you say, well, gee, I, I don't know what to make of this movie. I think this is a victim of bad editing is actually what happened, which is a shame. Now, your favorite Expendables film. It actually is. Uh, Expendables 3, which the one-offs here are Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Wesley Snipes, Kelsey Grammer, Antonio Banderas, and of all people, Ronda Rousey. 
So by the time we get around to round three, the cast has expanded significantly, adding all those people I mentioned, including the MMA Flash and the Panorama Rousey, and Frazier himself, Kelsey Grammer, to the already rather large cast. Only Van Damme and Willis are absent here. The cheap inside jokes are still there. I mean, Snipes actually says, I went to jail for tax evasion in this one. Uh, the mood is lighter, and it's more of a buddy film sort of thing than the failed attempt at greediness of the first Expendables. Snipes and Stallone get a few scenes that recreate their back and forth from Demolition Man. And while the feel still comes off miles away from the canon films vibe that these are clearly shooting for with these, this one leaves a lot more room for the banter and camaraderie between all these guys than when the series had started, you know, three or four years before. Schwarzenegger, Ford, Banderas, Rousey, even Lee and Lundgren are all effective walk-ons, and Gibson doesn't come into the picture until the halfway mark, but Grammer does a surprisingly good job in his Chris Christopherson and Blade sort of role. And it was nice to see the Stallone Snipes and Stallone Gibson interplay, as over-the-top as Gibson is, as you mentioned. Bottom line, it's still another inessential star fucker. Remember the Glory Days project? But much closer to the mark than we'd seen with the other two films. So, of the three, this is definitely my choice. Well, I, I still enjoyed two best, but this this is by no by no means a terrible movie. Uh, did did you catch Antonio Banderas like riffing at the end? Well, did you catch him riffing on his earlier persona? Is like something decided in him. I'm gonna play this like it was the early '90s again. I'm being yep. a complete crazy motherfucker. Yep. And because he play, you know, Antonio Banderas plays like. A cr- crazy man and that and you could see every act it's almost it was almost like uh, to me it was almost like these old school guys had no idea how to how to play with antonio Banderas mm-hmm. because he was playing it so what's the word off the cuff you know it looked like a lot of stuff may have been just blurted out you know improvised <laughs> is what i'm looking for and it's possible mel gibson made a fine Badass, ruthless arms dealer. Surprisingly, he did bulk up, and he has a good fight with Stallone at the end. It's, I thought it was a tad over long and a little ridiculous. Yeah. You know, all right, the building's blown to smithereens. The whole, the whole city's been blown apart. Let's have a mano a mano fight. I, I, I enjoyed the fight with him and Van Damme in the previous picture. That being said, Bruce Willis does not come to the to the aid of everybody it's harrison ford of all people yes which was pretty cool it's a fun movie i give it that yeah and for me the selling points really were grammar did a really good job and i wasn't even expecting to be there and the wesley snipes thing i mean this was surprising he really came in out of uh, <laughs> hiding, I guess, owned up to whatever, and basically was doing Demolition Man all over again. He was a complete fucking lunatic all over again. And I liked the interplay that they had there. So so then he does Creed, like you had talked about earlier. I don't know if you knew well, that. Before, before that, though, he did do Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, yeah, that was actually 2017. It's right after Creed. Yeah, Guardians... All right, the first film I loved, uh, we had mentioned this previously, it was all about family is what you make it, not what you're born into. And this guy finding all these other fellow misfits and getting together, and that's basically what it's all about. The second one was more about facing up to your relatives and your, your heritage, if you will, and the problems that ensue there. But it's not as straightforward as that, and I did not think it worked. I think they kind of... Kind of like the Thor Ragnarok that really played it for comedy. It was already a comedy, the first one, but this is a very different kind of comedy. It was more of a fluff comedy. I didn't think it worked. But Stallone is surprisingly enough in it as one of, I believe, Yondu's henchmen. He's like the second in command. No, he he would be his, no, not his henchman, but he would be like an alt, you know, and also another leader. But it was more of just kind of like, Again, a Starfucker thing. Oh, look who's there. Oh, that's Stallone. Cool. Does he really get a lot to do? No, he's on air. You know, he gets enough screen time, considering. More than you would expect. It's not just a cameo. But 
it's not a big part for him. I like the hell out of it. I like both these movies, and I, and I like the hell out of it. Cause always good to see Kurt Russell again, and Kurt Russell playing God. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> and and not only God, but like the God. So there's that. It's a, it's a entertaining. The special effects were amazing. I like this cast. I like how they work well with each other. Who knew that James Gunn can, was even capable of making anything like this? Because I really hated his movies beforehand. Um, <laughs> the abrasive, nasty, ultra-violent... What was that thing? Uh, oh, he made it like a superhero thing with somebody, and he just made movies I did not like watching. And then he made Guardians of the Galaxy, which I was like, wow. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Yeah. yeah, and I liked this. And and so my reaction to Stallone with this, I was... I. I promised myself I wouldn't read too much about it and I was shocked to see Sylvester Stallone and Michelle in this movie so there's that too hey I liked it a lot more than you I see where you're coming from but I don't agree with him fair enough (laughs) (laughs) so again he's doing kids movies like Animal Crackers he shows up on that TV show that everybody seems to love This Is Us and he does Escape Plan 2 and I, which which just hit streaming, so I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I think he's actually still working on. I don't think they released it yet. Creed two and then Rambo five. Well, no, Creed two. I said just came out this Thanksgiving weekend uh, when I was talking about the Rocky right, movies right. earlier, about two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Creed two is the latest in the Rocky thing. It just came out Thanksgiving weekend, although probably you guys won't be listening to the show until January-ish. Yeah, so by the time it comes out, you may actually see Rambo 5. <laughs> and Rambo 5 is currently shooting in Mexico right now. Yeah, so he's still hitting those same old, okay, I, I make money off Rocky, I make money off Rambo. But in between, he's done a lot of odd and interesting things, some of which work pretty well, yeah. whether intentionally or not. Other ones really don't work so well, but we do enjoy him for who he is. And yes. thanks for all you've given us, for all the laughs, unintentional or not, and uh, for all the surprisingly decent acting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm not sure, who did you want to do next time around? I don't know, what was, what was on the list? Uh, what was Oh, whatever the hell, we'll figure it out offline. <laughs> yeah, let me know offline. Yeah. So stay tuned next week where we do a surprise show. That's right. It could be anything. <laughs> oh, let's do let's do Roddy McDowell. We could do that. That was on the list, right? Yeah. Yes, it was. All right. So we will see you next time around whenever this next one gets recorded for Roddy McDowell. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Sylvester Stallone. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, filmmaker, musician, we'd like to join us in here. Drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the non existent Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Any final words? Uh, good night, all, and uh, thanks for listening on our chat about Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, we both agree that he's actually a pretty good actor, and his movies are, for the most part, very entertaining and so yes. much more than others. Very much so. All right, we will see you next time around.
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, 
your career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio.